This is an ABC podcast. Maggie Dent grew up around boys and men. As a high school teacher and then as a family counsellor, Maggie found she had a real affinity for teenage boys in particular. It also helped that she was the mother of four, yes, four sons. In her conversations with parents, Maggie often found that they were bewildered by their teenage son. They said it was as though an alien had landed in their family. Their sweet, darling, beautiful boy had just entirely disappeared and had been replaced by a gangly, unpredictable and sometimes surly human being, a gigantic mass of elbows, knees, spots and appetites. But Maggie says that people often misunderstand what teenage boys are going through as they cross the wobbly bridge from boyhood to manhood. Maggie Dent's new book is called From Boys to Men, Guiding Our Teen Boys to Grow into Happy, Healthy Men. Hello, Maggie. Welcome back. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. What a beautiful description. Thank you. (laughs) Tell me about the, the boys and men you grew up with and how you got on with them. Oh, look, I was um, the fifth in a family of six. The, the tail end of us was scattered a bit further down. So by the time I was five, basically the two older brothers and my older sister had already gone. And so it was my older sister and then my little brother, and he was a lamb. And then my dad, being a farmer, he was just an awesome human being. So I, I spent the first five years of my life tagging along behind my dad. So I was really blessed to be immersed in the company of such a good man. I can recall when I was a teenager, I often preferred hanging out with girls than my fellow males. Were you just the like that in the sense that you preferred to hang around with, with boys when you were a teenager? <laughs> Absolutely. You can, I, found that, I found girls so complicated. I, I just didn't seem to understand it. And even as a grown woman today, I can glaze over it if I'm out with a, a table full of women <laughs> that have got too many conversations going on. So quite often also... Um, you know, we were raised around um, being really active if we weren't working on the farm. So kicking a footy AFL, of course, during winter down near the shearing shed was just what we did most Saturdays. And in summertime, it was, you know, with a cricket bat. So I'm pretty good at a torpedo punk kick and I'm pretty good at <laughs> tonking a cricket ball. So at school, I was most often found on the oval with the boys. Now, teachers, you became a teacher and teachers very often struggle with teenage boys. How did you go with that role, being their teacher, Maggie? It's really interesting, Richard, because I was a a really raw 22-year-old when I stepped into the classroom. I didn't kind of realise that I came with this understanding. And from the get-go, I just kept looking at these really bewildered boys in my classrooms who were doing the craziest, dumbest, impulsive things and then, you know, when you wanted to chat with them afterwards, if you, you know, because I could be safe, <laughs> they were as confused as why they did it as, as I was. So I started to sort of recognise that, hang on a minute, so you didn't actually plan. There wasn't an intention to disrupt the entire classroom with that very loud fart. Um, you know, and I started to recognise what does drive their behaviour a little in groups because sometimes it's quite different at home and I also realised that when I actually, I just wanted to care for them a bit more because I had such a good relationship with my little brother. He was a lamb so I was blessed with a gentle brother, a thoughtful kind of, which is such a good thing for me because being raised around the 50s and 60s, the man box created the alpha male as the only preferred version of male but I'd had a childhood with a with a brother that was much more gentle than I was. So that was meant I was able to read that boy in my classroom, not just the loud, round, you know, the one that was trying to be what they were supposed to be. Were you mortally offended by those rowdy boys? Oh, gosh, no. No, seriously, if you've been raised around brothers, you kind of have a bit of an understanding. I actually chose to teach particularly 14-year-old boys because they are in this craziness and we had no idea what was driving the impulsive behavior the slapping the grunting the sitting on each other the the banter the antics which when it's happening like oh my goodness you just sit there thinking what on earth is going on it like a pack of gorillas or something and then kind of underneath that there's this desperate part of them for you to like them and care about them 
um, at the same time as they don't really deserve it. And really, that's one of the metaphors I keep saying to parents. You know, your challenge is to love your son while he can't love himself because he's behaving really interestingly. I can recall when I was a teenager going into a KFC one day with a bunch of friends, male friends, and, and we were pretty nerdy guys, you know, but we were laughing a little bit too loud, you know, just enjoying ourselves. And the manager came over to our table and said, Look, I don't want any trouble, okay? It was like that. I mean, we were the most innocuous boys in the world, but <laughs> the manager said, I don't want any trouble, okay? Don't want any trouble. And I, I just wonder, teenage boys, their presence does set, tend to be unwelcome in public places, doesn't it, Maggie? Oh, seriously. And uh, look, honest to goodness, it's, you know, when we, we're starting to deconstruct some of the biases that we have around gender, the same as we're doing it now around, you know, race and things, that they automatically, you know, boys will... will you know, people will come out and, and do exactly that. I've seen them do it even in a cafe today because we assume they're going to be trouble instead of assuming that they're not going to be trouble, but they may be a bit noisy. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I know boys would say to me, why is it that I get thrown out of the classroom as soon as I put my hand up um, sometimes or I have, I'm not sitting straight at my desk? Now, what I've learned is boys' bodies are all over the place and they do sprawl a lot more and they take up more space than girls. They're not neat like that. And that hunger to move those bodies isn't a sign of disrespect. Like, and I, can, I remember I looked up one day in a year nine class, and I had three boys ambling around the classroom and I said, hey, matey, um, what, are you, what are you doing walking around? He says, oh, I don't know, miss. <laughs> I said, I. And I said, and what are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I just thought I needed to move. And when you do the neuroscience around it, when they run out of dopamine, which is the engagement neurochemical, which we need as teachers <laughs> to engage them, especially in English. Oh, my gosh, they don't like English that much. Um, then they get up to move to make some more dopamine, but we assume they're deliberately misbehaving. So they get a bad rap. I can remember the shift from primary school to high school. By the time you get your last year in primary school, you, 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 you kind of figured out how to be a kid. It's really great. Like that last year I really enjoyed in primary school. You figure out how to be a kid and you're at the top of the tree in the primary school. And then you make the next step forward into adolescent life, going to high school, but then you're right down the bottom and you don't know your way around at all. It's terribly confusing, isn't it? Uh, it's really confusing and in actual mm. fact triggers a lot of fear, Richard. So this is one of the challenges I started to identify when I had those quiet chats with boys after class when they had, you know, made some poor choices was – um, you know, they're really frightened of looking stupid. They were frightened of being embarrassed. They were frightened of not fitting in. They were frightened of the group of males they want to belong to not wanting them. Um, they were frightened of getting lost. They were frightened of failing. So these sorts of things they keep so hidden under the what I call the teen mask. And some of those teen masks aren't the friendliest things on the planet, um, whereas the boys who look at the ground with long fringes they're hiding under a different mask to the ones that are trying to arc up in your classroom or be the class clown. But they're all underneath it, um, experiencing enormous stress, stress and challenge because the, their body's doing unpredictable things, their brain's doing unpredictable things, their hormones are sort surging, they've got zits, they've got so much going on that is creating change and change triggers the amygdala in the brain to experience threat. So, you know, the fight-flight response is, is there quite often over something that they have no idea what's triggering it. So, again, no wonder they're confused. A scene you can often see with teenage boys is that they've done something really dumb, like really so knuckle-headed it's beyond belief. And mum is just shouting at him, uh, just saying, why were you there? What was going on? Explain to me. I, I don't understand. What the hell? I've told you and I've told you and I've told you. And I know what the guy's thinking. He's thinking, I think she's upset. And uh, and if I sit really still, at some point this will all be over. And <laughs> and he's just not taking it in. Do, do teenage boys just don't hear? Do they hear less words than than their female counterparts? Okay, so what's happened is most <laughs> boys have had a whole childhood, a boyhood of that, where mum's been saying, what would you do that for? Why have you forgotten that? Because notoriously that gender isn't as good at organisation and memory, and we just know that. So what happens is all of those lectures that have been well-intentioned to help them learn and remember, by the time we're a teen, or they're a teen in those early windows, 
there's just it's just mum again gosh she's going off and of course um some of the early brain changes um mean that we can't take in as many words either but there's that part underneath it richard and this is the part when i started to tap into this that boys just go oh i've upset mum again so the the kind of emotional pain that's under when they get that that sort of a conversation you've done it again or you know and it, it, it really was quite heartbreaking, you know, and I shared a story in the book of a boy whose mum was giving him the freezing out treatment, which is something a lot of us women do when we're unhappy. Um, it was five days in from freezing him out because she was really unhappy with his report card. And um, fortunately, two of his friends were able to uh, kind of get hold of me and locate me because he had two different means of ending his life. And when I spoke to him, this is a 14-year-old boy, he said to me, I thought my mum had stopped loving me forever and I did not want to live on, a, on an earth without my mother's love. So the fragility of the way they see the world, we must come to understand and respect that it's not the same way that us growing up see it because they don't have enough myelin in the brain, the capacity to think things through. Tell me what you found out about what's going on in the brains of adolescents, neurologically speaking? Oh, it's three main changes. The very first one is that the uh, mother nature decides, I'm going to change this boy brain, which you've described beautifully, loving the world, everything's fabulous, I'm able to, <laughs> uh, into one that's going to be ready to be a grown up responsible brain. So we'll just prune off things automatically that we don't think you'll need. And accidentally, it prunes off a bit more than we want. So it definitely prunes off too much of around the memory and the organisation stuff. And a lot of people will, this is about the same time it feels like an alien stole your son because he used to be able to put his dirty washing in the laundry basket. He used to be able to, you know, probably unpack the dishwasher when it was his turn. Now when you say it's time, you know, I'm going to drop you at school, he'll jump in the car but his backpack's still on the kitchen table. He will forget to clean his teeth. He will... He doesn't even know what day of the week it is. And you're starting to think, oh, gee, this is just disrespectful behaviour. Yeah, it's willfulness. It's just sheer yeah. willfulness and bloody mind. That floor drove, yeah. you know, your bedroom. So yeah, I've got to yeah. get down really hard. Whereas if you actually understand what's going on, then we can work with them. And then, so that's the first bit. And this is where the way they see the world changes, um, Richard, and it's like a cracked windscreen. So they saw it like you before, but now they don't. And this is where the self-criticism comes up. This is the self-loathing. This is I'm stupid. The self-talk becomes really negative. And this is why they often look downwards because they don't want people to see how they are attacking themselves. So that's the very first one of these windows where um, the vulnerability um, is really huge. But at the same time, they're feeling like dumb, useless and stupid. The brain has made endless more dendrite connections so they can learn fast. <laughs> so your chance of getting really smart or mastering a skateboard or learning how to speak a new language or play a musical instrument is in the same window with the pruning. So it's kind of like, gosh, when you've got amazing people who enthuse them, they can improve drastically in this, this little window. Isn't that fascinating? The research you're referring to there about uh, neural pruning, I, I looked at yep. some of the research there and it suggests that there is a dramatic drop in the activity of delta wave brainwaves as uh, children pass through adolescence. And these occur, these brainwaves occur around REM sleep. And this is essentially the time of night when we empty the trash of our brains. And this explains so much as to why we kind of enjoy, as parents, tormenting our adolescent children. We wake up feeling pretty good having had plenty of that delta wave sleep, and they haven't had it. They're in a, they're, that's why they're kind of so grumpy and exactly. foul in the morning. Exactly. So the need to fall asleep, too, changes. So their response to melatonin levels isn't the same. And then, of course, they're on devices with the you know flashing blue lights as well and that's the other reason their prefrontal comes off low uh, offline at night as well whereas ours can stay online it's not quite as efficient as it is before but for them it's offline so guess where most of the problems happen is when they're engaging in that digital world at night with not enough sleep and oh goodness um poor 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 choices 
Added to this, there's a phenomenon called hot cognition. Is that the, what you were talking about just a moment ago, Maggie, or is it something else? Now, that's something else. So this is what we now know is that um, um, within the brain, and this is one of those challenges, is that they can get a, um, a moment and feel really, really impulsed to do it. And so one of the things that came up on a, um, it wasn't, I think it was an ABC Catalyst program or something about the science of teens. They had a grown man of 45 and a 17-year-old boy doing a driving test among cones. Now, basically, they did very similar when it was just the cones and them driving. And then two or three gorgeous-looking teenage girls came out and were watching. Well, the boy's brain goes into a hot cognition state because he is biologically wired to perform better, to show off, because he's, it's this drive that hides underneath biologically to create uh, attract a mate. So he will hit all the cones. So this is the other reason why we want our kids to know that driving um, with other passengers in your car at night is a really high risk of having an accident because they, once again, it's a little hot cognition, but they're so easily influenced with the need for them, you know, to be accepted and validated by their friends that they can make really poor decisions. So if they've got no one in the car, they're not as likely to go into it, flip into a hot cognition state. How are these years for boys viewed in traditional cultures, rites of initiation, that kind of thing? Oh, gosh, it was seen as like the, you know, the main reason that um, womanhood and manhood existed was to take our precious babies and guide them into healthy children and then take them off on these separate journeys. And it was the responsibility of every healthy, mature growing up in those communities to ensure that they were given the life skills and the attributes and the knowledge and the culture and the law of their community so that when that when the myelation in the brain finishes, they then can be able to step up over a rite of passage to be seen as a mature adult in their community. So it was lots of mentoring, lots of guidance, lots of, and it wasn't done in a hurry. It was side by side. And, you know, basically you didn't graduate into manhood or womanhood because you turned 18 or 21. It was when your community had deemed that you were ready and then you had a rite of passage which challenged you so that it wasn't just a stepping over a little threshold. You had to kind of prove yourself as well. So again, it was a really consciously driven thing that we are kind of leaving to chance in our world. And in, indeed, I think the World Wide Web is doing a lot of our preparation for adulthood and far too early as well. It was a pretty gendered thing, wasn't it? The, the boy leaves the company of the nurturing women, the mother and, and, and the other women, and then is taken in hand by a father or a, a male elder. Yes, exactly that. Um, and it's interesting, I spent some time in some of the remote Aboriginal communities doing work, and I worked in the, with some beautiful elders in the Yulni community at one point. And up there, um, as they've got, um, you know, adolescents preparing to launch off into adulthood um, and if they think they've got two who may be um, possible partners down the track they get identified they're already being mentored by the men and by the women but it's the grandmother of the groom who takes over um, the the female's version of preparing her for um, committed you know um, parenthood <laughs> and it is the uncle of the girl who takes the boy. So in actual fact, they have incredible vested interest in doing that journey in the most, um, you know, respectful and loving way to prepare them for what is to come. This is particularly hard in family situations where the father isn't around, hasn't chosen to be around or can't be around or has died or has married elsewhere. What do you say in those situations when there isn't a father to help take a son across that bridge into manhood? Well, there's very clear research and it's good news is that the significant, loving, consistent relationship of one parent is enough for us to become a decent human being. What we do know is that the world of boys, boys are always looking for those positive males to look at. They also learn off women, which is interesting in that research that, you know, we, we know that women also influence boys on the journey to manhood. So they're actually looking for them. And you might not, they might not have 
identified that that is somebody I'm looking at, but in school systems, in our sporting systems, um, in neighbourhoods. So sometimes, and I remember a beautiful story of a boy who was um, at a boarding school and he was struggling with enormous homesickness and I had worked with him um, a couple of times and he went home for Easter to his country community and when he came back, he had to ring me and tell me how excited he was um, because when he went home, he went into the local newsagent and the newsagent was, oh, so good to see you, mate. You're doing so well. I heard this happened and I heard this happened. And and when the boy rang me, he said, you know, they didn't forget me. <laughs> and it's people who show an interest and show me that I still matter that might not be thinking they're making much of a difference but in actual fact, they are. So they're, But they also look online as well for those role models and significant people, and sometimes they have great examples, don't they, and others not. But we do really want to encourage everyone out in communities, even if you're listening right now, um, and you're a male, um, just look around and see if there are some boys whose dads are unable to be kind of in their lives as much as we'd like them to be because they do respond when we step up and you're also showing your own son or your own children that we care about other people's children, not just our own, which is that big shift from traditional cultures to today. Quite some years ago, I spoke with the late Celia Lashley about this and, and mm. her advice for single mums was to, where there wasn't a father around, was to get a piece of paper, draw a dot on in the middle of it and call that your son, then draw concentric circles around it and try and locate in that boy's life the man who is the male elder who's closest to him, whether that's a teacher or a grandfather or a coach or, or an uncle or someone else, and encourage that man to step up, to step up for that boy. What do you think of that? I think it's brilliant. Celia, it was just such a golden uh, font of wisdom. And I, I think one of the other things in this is that when I've spoken to lots of men in men's only groups, they're a bit concerned about taking responsibility for someone else's son. And I keep saying, you know, it's it's not such a big responsibility. It's just being present. Um, and if you look back to um, you know, finding a common interest, this is what I keep saying, if you've got a son who's only 10, 11 and 12 and you want to know how do I stay connected to him or, you know, on that journey to manhood while still letting him be his own person, is there a an interest you've already got? Um, is there an interest you can create, you know, whether it's tinkering with cars or you'd love to ride mountain bikes um, very fast with Lycra or do you like go camping or fishing or do you like football and it's the same team? Whatever that interest is, if you can maintain that and it might shift because, you know, sometimes he might just want to watch a football game with you but not talk, but in his world, that's connection. So it's not about all the words you might need to say. It's they just want to hang out with people who care about them. Just going back to the classroom again, Maggie, Boys in the classroom, more fidgety, as you, as you said, and often don't know why they're so fidgety. And you know, very often that's because they're in these new bodies that are much, much bigger and ganglier than, than they're used to and don't quite know how to inhabit them just yet. Uh, school, that, is there something about the nature of school that doesn't work as well for boys general? And these are all general comments, of course, yeah. compared to girls. What do you think? I think it's definitely... Uh, it's linked to one other thing, Richard, and that is if a boy sees that he has a really good chance of being successful and doing well, then he will be engaged in it. So what happens, um, again, around that brain pruning is that they start to see things a little differently. So one of the things that a lot of boys don't like is that's English and writing essays um, because they don't think it's going to be useful. So it's not relevant for me, Miss I had a beautiful boy um, who grew into the most lovely man, um, year 11, so about 15 and a half, 16, who said, Miss, I don't need to learn how to write an essay. I'm going to play football for Australia. And I said, yeah, that's great, mate, but, you know, you, this is what I have to do, so I'm going to persevere with you. Um, and he just, seriously, it took me all year as a 15 and a half year to get him right from a paragraph to a page and a half. And many years later, he caught up with me and said, you know, I just have to tell you a story and say thank you for that because... Um, I was doing really well in football, but he had this nasty injury that that meant he missed two years with a serious foot injury. And um, he, when he went back, he, he, he realised his dream was over because he just was never going to get to the levels that he was sure he would get to. 
So he had to look around. He had a really good chat with his parents. He was only 21 at the time. And he decided the only other thing I'm a bit interested in is physiotherapy because they spent so much time trying to fix my foot. So he said, I just want to say thanks for helping me <laughs> learn to write an essay. But can you see, once again, there's this thing inside uh, boys and men, and this comes from the biggest experts there are, particularly Michael Gurian, who says they like an external experience or event that they kind of set up for themselves to see how they do. And if they do well, they give themselves self-worth, whereas often us females, we're internalising absolutely every moment rather than external experience. So if they look out there and go that English essay, yeah, it's not really going to give me a chance to make me feel good about myself, so I might not even bother. So it's this kind of unplugging, um, and this is where we talk about um, disengagement. But what we do know, and the research is really strong, is they are the chances of engaging in subjects they don't think are relevant is so strongly linked to the teacher delivering the content, and that is the teacher who cares, the teacher who makes them feel valued in that classroom. They will work really hard or try really hard or even seek help. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations. With Richard Feidler. Now, Maggie, very often for, for teenage boys, school can be a pretty uh, uh, experience for them. How do you encourage your darling, darling boy to work at school? How about yelling? Does yelling work? Does a lot of yelling work with getting the kid motivated? <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely doesn't. I think we've got to look at it as a holistic thing that a tired boy isn't going to do well at school. So sometimes I've got to look at some of the fundamental things about are they in the right state? Do they have the right energy? Are they organised enough? And are we supporting them in that? Uh, So one of the things we do know is that boys, you know, as I said, that organisation stuff can be tricky. I still remember one day noticing that the boys coming into one of my year English, 11 English classes, had these massive bags full of books on their back. And the girls only had small bags. And I, I said to a boy one day, how come you've God, what have you got in your bag? You've got so many books. And this is a year 11 boy. So we actually know the brain is starting to grow a few more neurons at that point and a few more connectors. So they're usually <laughs> getting better. And he said, yeah, look, miss, he said. And there is his chemistry book, his math book, his biology book. In other words, every single one of those giant books is in the bag. And I said, but you only had those subjects three days a week. He said, yeah, I know, but oh, I just couldn't remember what day it was. So I just cart the whole <laughs> lot around. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I suppose it's pragmatic, but it's so short term, it's incredibly unpragmatic. Mm. So once again, um, it is. Okay, so one of the things, if we identify that our boy is not doing as well at school as he possibly was in primary, yeah, because that's really that window that says, oh, it's too hard, I can't be bothered, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. It is really important that you connect with the school as soon as possible and chat to the year leader or something so you can get a really accurate picture about what's going on. So one of the things I found, I had to improve my teaching because if I gave an explanation of a task, say that I wanted them to write a play or a poem about man versus nature and it was due on this date, that was way too general. Boys are just going, I have no idea what she's talking about. What's a a play? What's a poem? (laughs) But when I deconstructed it into steps, The girls all thought that was a waste of time. But for the boys, that meant that I actually started getting their work in earlier. So I think we've got to look at the capacity for us to make sure we're communicating in our classrooms in a way that is boy-friendly as well as girl-friendly. Scaffolding of tasks actually can help boys participate a lot better. So, okay, so they're not doing well. So your job is, okay, we've identified we've got a disengaged boy. If you just say to him, okay, so you just got to improve your grades, he has no idea how to go about that. So I actually write a plan. You sit down with your boy and say, these grades, you know, you're capable because we've seen it before. I've talked to your teachers and you are. So we're going to work out a bit of a plan how you can improve them over time. So we're going to give you a whole semester. Don't expect to do it in a week or two. Um, You're going to actually 
target possibly one or two subject areas and only aim for one grade up so we can say, oh, there's a chance I could do that. Whereas if you jumped back up to too big, you just, nah, I can't do that. And then, of course, you get feedback from the school. You see if he needs any extra help. Then you review it every now and then. You just check in how he's doing. But when you do it with him and it's a step-by-step, there's a possibility I could improve, then he's more likely to buy in with it. And if it hasn't worked in a semester, he hasn't failed, we're just going to give it a bit more time. So again, there are ways that you can get our boys to get (laughs) re-engaged, but just telling them to lift their grades and to pull their socks up or you're going to take their money off them probably won't work. I think it's really good for teenage boys to be in a class with teenage girls socially, but educationally, I wonder, like the approaches seem to work so differently. Boys often feel, or they report this, and how fair this is, I don't know, but often they feel that they get the message from teachers, particularly women teachers, which, oh, can't you, why can't you just be more like a girl? Why can't you just understand what I'm saying to you and just pick it up and run with it rather than having to hammer it into your head again and again? What do you think about that, Maggie? Oh, look, this, the research is pretty strong that it's more quality of teacher, engagement of parent and a relevant curriculum that improves educational outcomes. So if all of those are in place, then there's definitely a space around things where we can do it differently. You know, the hot cognition thing again, you know, the need to show off sometimes is just so strong at certain ages of our boys that it isn't, it might be better to have a whole class of boys for that particular core subject for that particular year group. But I just know as a, I taught in co-ed, there were times that they really valued listening to girls and boys and explaining how they saw things very differently and listening to each other. Because if we just, again, you know, one day, you know, I think it's kind of like nearly 90% will end up in a heterosexual relationship. If you've been in that solo sex school for those years and you don't have a sister or, you know, opposite gender in your home. It's definitely not good, no. It's not healthy at any level. I think one of the challenges is has changed. The environment has changed in a very negative way, sadly, thanks to the influence of pornography, and that is that the banter that used to happen around boys to girls and things used to be fun and kind of tame and a bit lame, actually, but calling out a girl that she's hot or she's gorgeous or whatever. Now, because of the influence of pornography, it's more common for the same age boy to call them hoes or whores or things that they've heard on other sites. So in other words, they're still trying to be funny, but unfortunately, the whole landscape of what possible things they could say is changed. And we cannot leave that to chance. We have to start having those conversations before puberty happens around respectful languages and that that is not okay. And putting boys in the company of women who aren't their mothers, that they can learn to respect and learn to enjoy their company and learn to enjoy the differences and all those sorts of things. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that there's a second side too, and that's that you know, that I talked about 14-year-old boys, very physical. The physicality for boys is often what they do towards their mates. And instead of saying, you know, gee, you're my best mate, I really like you, they'll just slap them around a bit more because that's kind of, you know, it's aggression nurturance, which is I use physical movement sometimes (laughs) because I like you, you know, I want to punch you and have fun with you. But what's happening Again, it's because of their exposure to too much violent material online and it's not just pornography, it's also violent gaming and it's violent movies and violent stuff on things like YouTube, is that they've become desensitised to, um, again, that sort of antic behaviour. And so our girls are having to deal with being groped and grabbed in public places because it's shifted again, because that is not what they were seeing 25 years ago before all this happened. And we can't leave that to chance that you could possibly think, and of course, when you pull up a boy who might be doing that, he says, I was just trying to be funny. Well, it's it's not funny and it's not okay. And it's a combination of us collectively, I think, Richard, that not just parents, us as educators, as aunts and uncles and people saying, this is really not okay. That's not how we behave. Much of the worst aggressive behaviour from teenage boys is rooted in fear. What do you do about getting boys to understand that, to see that, get the insight? 
into themselves that they're behaving badly because they're frightened of something. It is very much about creating an environment where it's safe enough for boys to feel that they can open up and have these conversations. Now, you know, there are some teachers, there are some grown-ups who are great at doing this, particularly in unofficial situations around campfires or, you know, whatever, that things might come up and there'll be a quiet conversation. That's one. But what we know is that when really capable people can come in and some there are fabulous programs now coming into our schools that create safe environments where they deconstruct the the unhelpful messages they're getting from the world we get them to be heard and we get them to really question the bits because the man box is being deconstructed but parts of it kind of like um you know again we were we were moving in a direction where you didn't have to be stoic, that men could still have vulnerable feelings and own up to struggling. And then we have all these unintended influences of pornography and violence. So it's kind of like we were moving in a good direction, then we moved in the other. So they have to have opportunities where they can be heard without judgment. Now, if you talk at them, it just goes like water off a duck's back. When you're talking with them and you're talking sometimes through the lens of How are your friends dealing with this? Or have you seen this happen? Because what we also know is that there are boys now standing up saying, I don't like being flicked by a towel and my genitals in the in the change rooms. So I'm sorry, that's not okay for me. If it's okay for the rest of you, it's all right. So we're now changing a lot of the dialogue that where they just did it because they knew if they didn't, then someone would make fun of them, they'd get teased or they'd get ostracised. Boys often hate talking about their feelings. They see that as a woman's game and one they're always going to lose. Boys often prefer to act on their feelings rather than talk about them. Don't you think that's true, Maggie? Well, that's exactly what I thought until they started coming into my counselling room and I heard the complete difference. I heard incredible vulnerable stories. That's when I started realising, hang on a minute, they've they feel things differently to what I was thinking and they want to explore what those feelings are. So they feel as intensely as our teen girls. And we need to mention that um, in adolescence, sort of from 13 onwards, their limbic brain does this massive growth. That's yet another layer of the brain doing some growth. So their feelings become more intense than they were before puberty. So therefore, failing is even more painful. Being embarrassed is even more painful. Being frightened is even more painful. So what we do know is they feel it, but they can't always identify what it is or articulate it. So for girls and women, when the limbic brain fires up with being distressed or threatened, the next centre in females to fire up is the word centre. <laughs> That's no surprise. Mm. Um, and this with boys and men, it's the limbic brain and then the body. So you can see that that's the kicking out, the throwing a chair, the slamming a door, shoving or, or physical aggression. And the word centre isn't able to be activated for quite some time after the initial traumatic triggering in that space. So again, when you understand that, you'll automatically know that you've got to give some time before you come back and explore what might have been underneath that explosive emotional moment in their life. Here's an observation that um, I don't know if it'll make much sense to you, but it's been my observation that girls are more likely to say, I failed at something, which is honourable and honest, and it sort of opens up for figuring out how to do better next time. Boys and men will say, I am a failure. That's a big difference, and that's a much more worrying statement. Yeah, and this is one of the things I've, I guess has been a passion in my life is that I've, I noticed that we hit, hurt, shame, and crush little boys using shame so much more than we did girls. It's one of those conditionings that is taking some time to deconstruct and um, that there are there were men telling me stories, you know, in um, my counselling rooms of things that they'd done when they were a teenage boy that weren't even, you know, off the Richter scale. They were just, you know, impulsively poor decisions that they had been belted They had been frozen out by mum. They had been shamed. They had been, um, you know, grounded for months. And really, there's a part of them that didn't even understand what it was that they'd done so badly. So when we've done that over and over again, that shame is exactly what happens when they fail later. So failing in the old man box was a sign that you're useless. You're not strong enough 
you're not capable enough. And it's one of those things, again, that can contribute to serious challenges mentally down the track where when they've, they've made a mistake, how do I get through this? Or is everybody going to see that I'm a loser? You're exactly right, Richard. It, they do take it really, really personally. And it's the shaming that they've got culturally, socially. Um, and I'm hoping that we're going to start changing that. I sort of feel for the mums, particularly in all this, I mean, often they've got a lot of stuff going on in their own lives they want to deal with. And there's this son who's going through stuff. They can see that, but they not getting the communication. They don't know how to deal with it. How do mums strike the balance with their boys being understanding yet having a degree of strictness or what do you think, Maggie? Oh, it's a, a lovely blend of warm, fair, fun, firm. <laughs> it's just a, it's a blend of those. And one of the things um, which is really interesting is if you're going to, you know, we do have to have those firm conversations when they have done things. Um, and I do remember, you know, that one of my, my oldest rooster boy, he had uh, a lamb in between and another rooster and he was 16 and the other one was kind of um, 12. He really found him annoying because he was actually quite challenging. Um, and he started like, instead of friendly punches, they were really quite painful. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, so this is a moment I have to step up and do something. So I warned him a couple of times. And then I said, well, you know, this behavior continues. I am going to take your surfboard off you for a week. He's a mad surfer. And um, he didn't really think I would. Um, and he did it again. And I removed it. And it was the longest week of my life, possibly. <laughs> But he needed to actually experience what I call tough love. And often it's only the roosters that need to experience tough love, right? It's the ones that most gentle boys will just not be pushing boundaries as much. But what in that week, while I took his surfboard off, I didn't actually change the way I interacted with him. I still called him, you know, by his kind of endearing name. I still spoke to him in the same calm voice. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we've got to do as mothers is they need to know that we can still love them while they've been um, less than perfect and have been challenging. That And that's a really big one in that communication, that if you have to have a tough conversation, make sure you use the term of endearment. Make sure you choose a good time. Make sure you use a gentle, warm voice. Um, and if it's a really important thing, think of writing a letter. Dads can write the letter as well, but they don't write as long a letters as mums. The long letter where they can read it over and over again so they can think about why it is an important thing for them to review. So the mum letters, they're so important. And I... I had to laugh because these two roosters of mine ended up leaving WA and came to Sydney because Perth was way too small for them. And they were living together. And I sent them a letter and they saw the letter and they wouldn't touch it and wouldn't open it because they both thought it was a mum letter. <laughs> and in actual fact, it was tickets for something. But I <laughs> right. laughed. Yeah. They went, oh, no, did you get mum? No, neither of them knew they got mum letters. But there were times... There's something that we have to really communicate. We have to, this words can disappear and they can forget them. Once I saw this nice little stunt that a mum tried where she sort of gently sort of sneaked up on us and gently sort of put his head, in, she's small, quite a bit smaller than him, gently put his head in a headlock and then planted about 19 kisses all over his head and he wriggled and thrashed around and was going, oh, stop it, mum, stop it. But he was grinning like an idiot and he really liked it at the same time while he was, he was pushing her away. Yeah. I cannot stress how important connection is but less verbal. And it doesn't matter, uh, you know, whether it's dad or mum, if every now and then you just got to, you got to remember to tell them you love them still, even if they don't deserve it. And, and you might be able to grab them in the hallway, give them a hug. I'd often sit on them accidentally, like they'd be on the couch watching television. <laughs> I'd just sit on them, just sit on them. Um, or I'd tread on their foot sometimes when I'm standing next to them. They just look at me like, what's wrong with my mother? But my other way of connecting was really, um, I was a basketball tragic and so we always had a big backboard and there were times when they annoyed me and I'd go out and shoot hoops. <laughs> and over a period of 15 minutes, you'd find the door would keep sliding open <laughs> and another boy would come out. And it, before you knew it, we had a great game of, you know, around the, around the world or whatever. And I know that movement can help open boys' mouths at times and it can make them feel, hey, look, we're all right, you know, and there were times that, you might get a vent from one of them after school, but it's it's often not for you, not your stuff, it's theirs. 
And if we actually take it personally, then we wound them again. So if that happened for me, I'd always allow about 20 minutes and then I'd go down and knock at the door and I'd always pause and I'd sneak in without speaking and I'd shove a cup of Milo onto the desk and I'd shove a Bicky or a Tim Tam or something. I'd shove the dog in and then I'd close the door because what I've just communicated to him is we're still okay even though you've just, you know, given me a bit of a, a yuck <laughs> serve verbally in the kitchen. We are still okay. I love sitting on them on the couch. That's one of yeah, the fun things really you do good. notice is in my family, my wife is about a quarter of the size of our six foot one <laughs> son at the, at the moment. And, and if, you, if she does that, if she sort of can do that horseplay with him. It, it sort of alerts him to the fact of how much bigger he is than his tiny mum, his oh, smaller mum. So and, and it brings out a kind of tenderness, I think. Oh, it's beautiful. And I wanted to throw it out there that boys do really worry about their mums. Mm. You know, they kind of, there's a bit of that, you know, social construct and also biological thing that kind of you're now bigger. So a part of you, you know, there's a part of men's jobs is to protect and uh, defend our most vulnerable, and that is our women and our children. And I know um, that different times with a with a mum that was going through a marriage breakup or something, I'd have boys talk to me about how can I help my mum do I want to make sure I can keep her safe. Like it, they were, you know, 14 because there's this, they, they really do. They might forget your birthday, seriously. They'll forget at end of times, but they worry about you even if they're not in contact with you because, you know, that heart-centred place, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that one of the things that did surprise me in the survey that I did from over 1,600 men was who was the most significant person who helped you over that bridge to manhood, the bumpy bridge to manhood, and it was almost 60% said their mum. So while they're on a journey to manhood and they definitely need dads and men, they kind of need mums to be the safe base when things muck up. Who can I fall on? Because if that's the mum that was there when they were a four-year-old boy, you know, when they were little, it's like there's a four-year-old boy still inside them and they just kind of need to lean on her a bit. So again, we're kind of all in this together, but they do worry about their mums. In terms of getting the men to step up, how do you think modern dads or male elders in this boy's life can help that boy get across this bridge to manhood? Oh, and the good news is they are, Richard. Oh, my goodness. Um, everywhere I look, there are different things now out there for dads to learn how to be that, the dad they want to be rather than the dad they may have had. So it's really simple, is prioritise time spend time with them. Don't think you have to have big conversations every time. It's just make sure you've got some time. So make a regular time where you do something that you both enjoy together. I do love it when dads take their boys away from mums who worry too much um, and go and do unique boy man stuff because that's a kind of, especially when it's in nature. So those camping trips or those trips out to do something a bit different, prioritise those and keep doing them. And if you can, take some mates. There was no question that that came up so often again. My dad was awesome. He'd pick my mates up and we'd go on surfing trips. The memories are so strong that even dads who have to work hard, and that was a, another really big thing that came up from the regrets, is, you know, I wish my dad hadn't worked as much. And the dad saying, I'm not working as much because I remember missing my dad because he was always at work. So again, it's, you know, they're hungry for dads, but they're hungry for dads who will turn up in not only fun ways, but presence. Just be present in their life. Pick him up, drop him off. I have a really good bloke in my life who's this boy's stepdad and what a very brave man taking on four boys about to go into puberty. And I didn't know for a long time that when he picked them up from football training one-on-one -on -one or something, he would go and they'd get hot chips and he never told, I never knew about it and they all had to keep a secret. <laughs> um, but that was kind of this, I can tell you now, hot chips, that one-on-one, -on -one, they remember that. How important is it for dad to suddenly blurt out awkwardly and at completely the wrong time, I love you to their sons? Incredibly important. The more awkward, the better. <laughs> no question. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, and so one of the um, beautiful stories that's, um, you know, really touched me deeply as a dad that came to one of my adolescent seminars and realised he'd become a grumpy 
you know, dad to his 14-year-old son and he hadn't wanted to be that. So he, when he went home from the seminar, he wrote on the mirror, I'm really proud to be a dad, love dad. And his 14-year-old son came running in later with tears in his eyes and said, I didn't think you liked me at all. And just that gesture of writing a note, and of course you can send a text or a Snapchat, WhatsApp, whatever you've got around, just try that. Send your son a message and say, I'm really proud to be a dad because they actually need to hear those words just as much as they need to hear, I love you. You know, there's no question that this is where we're heading now for men to own the fact that their heart absolutely beats for the ones they love and that it's absolutely okay to express that as often as possible. Even if they roll their eyes, that's even better. And is it worth reminding mums that the alien that's in their life that's now inhabiting the soul and body of their child, <laughs> their once beautiful boy, comes back to them? You know, at 18, they tend to come make their way back solidly to their mums, don't they, by and large? Oh, it's so gorgeous. As, you know, there's mums that, and it can last two or three years, you just think, I'm never going to get him back. And then all of a sudden, he'll open up in the car and have a chat with you and you'll think, oh, my gosh, I haven't had that for three years. Mm. And then a little bit further on, exactly the same thing, they come back. And then I keep saying to them, you do have to let them go again, but you've got to let them go to become a man. And there's nothing more exquisite on the planet than when your son introduces you to his firstborn baby. That man, that is just such a beautiful thing to look forward to. Lovely to speak with you, Maggie. Thank you so much. Thank you. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. If you enjoyed Richard's conversation with Maggie Dent, you can listen to a podcast series dedicated to real-world parenting dilemmas. It's called Parental as Anything. Maggie talks to parenting experts from around the world to find practical solutions to the challenges that parents face today. In Season 3, Maggie tackles a question that keeps plenty of parents up at night. How much online gaming is too much for their children? Should parents know and understand every game that they're playing? I mean, in an ideal world, parents would understand games that their kids are playing, but it's not always possible. In a practical world, it's very difficult for parents to check on what their kids are actually doing. They can't stand over their shoulder and kids are so quick at flicking screens. So I lean more towards that idea of, you know, the whole amount of time that kids are online. Now, my impulse is just to smash that gaming console with a mallet, but I'm sure Maggie has a much wiser response. So how to help children build healthy online gaming habits? You can get the answer to that and many more parenting questions on Parental as Anything with Maggie Dent. Hear it on the ABC Listen app, podcasting apps like Apple and Google, or on your smart speaker.